Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. I'm so excited to be in this Advent season with all of you. Um, I love the stories of this time of year, and we do things a little differently during Advent. We sort of shorten our sermons. We're more leaning into story because we want our imaginations to be lit up in this time. It's not so much about deep study of the word, although we remain faithful to that. It's just a little bit of a different tone. So if you're new around here, um, it might seem a little bit different, and especially this morning, because I did things a little differently. I mean, have you ever seen me come up with a couple wrinkled, scribbled pages? As I was getting ready this week to be with you, I went to go tidy this up. And somehow, sitting all week with Mary and Joseph in a very untidy story, it just didn't feel right. So uh, give me a little messy grace here, um, because I just felt like this, with sticky notes and all, was kind of the vibe of Mary and Joseph this week. So anyway, but I'm going to need these for sure, because um, usually I blow up my notes to 14 font, and I didn't think through that part of the situation when I decided to go this route, so please forgive me. Okay, so again, we're in a season of Advent. Advent means coming or arrival, and as we've talked about, when we talk about this season of Advent, we as the church, like the entire Capital C Church through time around the world, celebrate a season where we honor that Jesus has come in the first Advent, and Jesus will come again in a future Advent. And we allow ourselves to sit in the tension between those two advents as people whose hope has been fulfilled and yet not totally is yet to come, holding hope yet to come. And in that between the advents, there are tensions that we hold in the, in the present, in the here and now. And so we started off on week one and we decided this year to look at the um, past advent, the moment of the birth of Jesus. We decided to look at it through different eyes and sort of enter into different stories and allow ourselves to be swept up by these, these people who were there for the first advent. Um, and so we started off with Zechariah. And so we talked about that reality intention of holding both hope faithfully he was holding hope and experienced extreme doubt at the same time and that really is like a, a, a an example of some of the tensions that we hold in between advents right so we honored Zachariah's story by considering hope and doubt and their role together Last week, Kelly Miller took us through the story of Elizabeth, and she talked about what it looked like to experience our faith expanding in the waiting, um, how, that, how that imagery of a pregnancy expanding is actually one Eugene Peterson uses in Romans 9, 8, 9? Eight. Um, and it's a beautiful, in his message translation, I encourage you to read it about that expanding hope in the waiting. Uh, I'm sorry, as faith expands in the waiting. It's really a beautiful metaphor. And so this morning, we get to talk about Mary and Joseph. And if you've been around the church, you've heard about Mary and Joseph. If you've been a kid and watched the Peanuts Christmas Carol, you know about Mary and Joseph. You probably, no matter what, know the story of Mary and Joseph. 
But I would say this morning that there's a little bit of a threat in the familiar sometimes, isn't there? I know there's a threat for me because all week long, just full disclosure, I kind of walk around thinking there's nothing new under the sun. What can I possibly say? But this is when we let something familiar be itself and still lean into something and don't let the threat of the familiar take away from the beauty of a story, a really beautiful story. So again, this week I sat a little differently. That's why my notes look like this. Is because what I was thinking is I want to sit with the real Mary and Joseph. The Mary and Joseph before they were depicted in stained glass and cathedrals all around the world. The Mary and Joseph before the Renaissance artists uh, or the Byzantine icon makers got a hold of them and honored them through art. Totally honor that. But I want to spend my week with the real Mary and Joseph. And that's what I did this week. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about them um, in more of a personal way, I think, than I've, I mean, I get the pleasure in this line of work to like spend actually a lot of time like that. And so I really did set down commentaries and picked up um, just some other more creative voices and other authors. And so anyway, I want us to sit and uh, be with Mary and Joseph and not let the familiarity of a story um, make us miss some of that. So what do I mean when I keep talking about familiarity? I think that it's really easy for us to go beyond what we know because we've heard from the peanuts or from other books, whoever else, we've heard the story so many times. So I have an image of my nativity scene. This is in our home, and uh, it's inaccurate, and it's beautiful. So we're, I'm like the third or fourth generation of people in my family who have used this same company. It's an Italian company. So you may notice some things are wrong about this nativity scene that I've collected for my whole life. Number one, they're Italian. Okay, Mary and Joseph were not Italian. They were not European, right? They were from the Middle East. So their skin is all the wrong color. But a couple of other things too. Mary's a grown woman. There's other things here that are wrong. But what do we not even know because a story is so familiar that we've sort of put our familiarity back into scriptures? Did you guys know we have no idea how many wise men were there? We don't know. And that, scripture doesn't say three. It does say they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we sing about three kings from Orient, right? We, we don't know. And were they kings? I don't know. I don't think we're like wise men. What is a wise man? I, maybe an astrologer? And we don't know how many there were. Anyway, my point here is not to debunk your family heirloom nativities, but instead to acknowledge, like, let's, let's stop. Let's get back to gritty and let's acknowledge what we do know and in so doing also what we do not know. And here's another thing I want to pause to say. I love to be a church where people have come from all different past church experiences or unchurched, like welcome all. Uh, Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, uh, Anglicans, unchurched, wherever you're coming from, people um, of Jewish background, everybody. But here's what I want to just pause for a second. For some people, some of you, you're like, yeah, Mary and Joseph, let's go. I want to hear the story. No baggage. I have no baggage. This will be fun. Some people have 
Mary baggage. And that's okay. I honor Mary baggage. Here's what happens. So in some church cultures, Mary is venerated and uh, lifted up. She is uh, depicted with uh, an image of perfection and artistic halo. Maybe this is your Mary. Maybe you were raised to pray to Mary to be your intercessor in your prayers. Some of us were raised in traditions that did the exact opposite. I would even say, in some cases, out of a spirit of fear. It was like Mary was the mother, and she was a young girl and faithful, and she gave birth to Jesus. But we should talk about Jesus. Stop talking. Don't look at Mary too much. Don't pray to her. Don't worship her. Don't don't glorify her. We got to talk about Jesus. Okay. Whichever one you came from, little baggage, right? It's okay. We're going to talk about what we know about Mary this morning. I'm not going to argue about any of that other stuff because I want to be a church that honors that different traditions are doing honorable things in the different ways that that, like their intentions are all good. This is not a, a fighting mat for me at all. I honor whatever Mary situation you come from. But I do want to honor that some people in the Mary baggage are coming from different places and I want us to honor what we do not know. Because the hard truth in this life of faith is that there are things we don't get to know. For example, Jesus's siblings. For some of you with Mary baggage, I'm gonna, I want to be gentle and loving. I th- we don't know if they are half-siblings or step-siblings. In some traditions, that matters a huge deal. Was Joseph a widower who had other children and Mary only ever held Jesus in her womb? Or did she go on to birth other children? And there are huge pieces of debate on this. We're not going to go down that path. I want us to honor. There's great thought and great care in these camps. We don't get to know. And I personally, maybe frustrating to some of you, I'm just trying to be honest. I personally come from the camp that's like, I want to honor what we don't know and not really debate any further because there's not going to be a book we're going to find that's going to tell us, I don't think. Um, And so I want to get to something beyond that. So I respect that. But when we can't find out, what do I want to look at? You guys, that family is so like loving. Whatever their mix, they were raised in a loving union. We find out later that the brothers and sisters of Jesus, be them step-siblings or half-siblings, went with Mary to say, Jesus, you're not taking care of yourself. You're working so hard you haven't even slept or ate. Do you remember that story? And he said, who are my brothers and sisters? They're the ones who are here. And he's expanding family talk. But behind the scenes, there's some version of family that cares deeply about each other. So that's what I want to look at. Here's a family. Jesus came from a family unit that cared and loved each other. And there's stuff we don't get to know. Here's the other thing that is uncomfortable. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Virgin birth. That makes some people a little uncomfortable. What am I supposed to do? There are questions in faith that are uncomfortable. And like I said, I closed the commentaries and I picked up some other thinkers just to allow words and creative expression around things that are confusing. If you haven't heard of this, Scott Erickson is sort of an artist and poet and like beautiful creative thinker. I am 
going to invite you to go into Sam's office and see some of his artwork. Sorry, Sam, but you should see it. He really like draws you into like deep thoughts. And I'm going to um, read something that he said about this that I thought was really honest and beautiful. So when he reads, writes about the virgin birth, he admits it's above his pay grade to write about it because he knows how these things typically happen. And so he says this, uh, he says, I attended biology class. I'm the father of three children. I can explain the steps two humans make, take to make a baby. But how that happened between the finite and infinite, I don't know. If you were to ask me if I believed it happened, I'd say I'm believing so. Because that's the most honest answer I can give in dealing with mystery. And I love that. Like that's an active, like I'm believing so. I can't explain it. That's where I am. Like, there's stuff we can't explain. And he goes on to say that. At the heart of the Christ story is mystery. The paradox is Jesus being fully God and fully human. Two seemingly contradictory truths existing in the same space and time. This is the mystery that continues to capture hearts and minds of millions of pilgrims throughout the world. Yet that mystery was birthed out of another paradoxical mystery. One where the finite and divine infinite wove together salvation in the belly of a Middle Eastern young woman. Like, yep, that's a mystery. But here are the things that when we look and study a lot, instead of just sitting with Mary and Joseph, we can get stuck, like kind of run up against the glass, like a bird hitting the glass they didn't see, of things like, you know, were the siblings half-siblings or, full, or uh, step-siblings? How exactly do we explain that? There's going to be stuff that we don't get to know. So today what we're going to do is we're going to allow the holy, divine mystery to sit with us. And that holy, divine mystery very intentionally included humanity, Mary and Joseph. And that's really beautiful. So today, I just want to enter their story for a little while. That's all, that's all we're going to do. We're going to enter into their story. And um, it's real, real human stories. So um, here are some things that we are going to look at in just sitting with Mary and Joseph this morning. Here are things we think we know. We do know. We, we know from Scripture. We know. Mary's very young. Most people guess she was probably 13 or 14. Do you guys know a 13 or 14 year old? Or maybe more awkwardly, what were you doing when you were 13 or 14? Think back to that age. Like that's the awkwardest in my, well, baggage. Um, Mary's young. Some people go up to 16, but culturally, how do they figure that out? That's not in scripture. Culturally, that's how the system worked, right? So she was engaged. That's not like our engagement where it's like, I love you. You love me. I'll book a photographer and surprise you. And then we'll say that we're intending to do this thing and spend the next year planning the event that will be the legal binding moment, right? That's what our engagement is, which is really fun. Their engagement was different. Since the time Mary was young, she would have known that she had been promised an illegally binding agreement to Joseph. You might notice, wait, the Gospel of Matthew calls Joseph Mary's husband before. Well, that's because culturally they would have been called, they would have been legally bound as husband and wife, but she would not leave to be with him in marriage and married until the time of their marriage. And so the engagement, however, was legally binding like our marriages are. So you might say, why did he have to divorce her? Because our marriages 
need a divorce. Their engagements needed a divorce, okay? So that's what we need to know. That engagement period was legally binding, but she was still young enough to not enter into the marriage part. But this young woman would have been growing up for some portion, knowing that her husband was Joseph. He just wasn't her married partner yet. Okay, so a little bit different, but important to understand the binding nature of what their engagement was. So it is culturally different than ours. Um, But again, before the ceremony, you were not to become pregnant. Just to be very clear, that was not part of the engagement deal. So um, in her youth, this was arranged. Uh, a couple other things, just to let you know, like, uh, like I mentioned, if you are trying to envision these, these people, real, real gritty human people, um, like I mentioned before, they're not Italian, you know, they're Middle Eastern, so they are um, also from the first century, so they, are, they have not yet supersized their life. They are significantly smaller. I think I read once that like the average uh, male at the time of Jesus may have been like five foot two, so Think of a, like a small Mary uh, uh, in a, we don't know Joseph's age. That's something we don't know. Um, so those are the things we think that, that we know. Oh, and we also know that they are in this town, Nazareth. We don't know a ton about Nazareth at the time, except that the disciple, uh, Nathaniel, who would be called to follow Jesus later, scoffs and says, uh, does anything good come out of Nazareth? So we're pretty sure that Nazareth does not have like a super cool, hip, urban <laughs> reputation, right? Like it's got a reputation of being kind of like backwoods or something, right? So this is an inconsequential town, an inconsequential young woman and uh, they believe we do not know that she comes from like a specific sect of Jewish people who were like specifically known to be quite impoverished Um, but again that we don't know we think I'm trying to balance what we know and what we think. Okay, and then this announcement comes. We talked about that uh, with the contrast with Zechariah and Mary, right? When Zechariah says, like, how can I be sure? And Mary says, how will this happen? She's more saying, like, okay, but, like, what are the details on how we're going to work this out? So she's not doubting. She's just saying, like, the normal system isn't at play here. So so we, we remember, we talked about that announcement. The angel comes, says, this is what's going to happen, and she ends up saying you know, may it be so. But here's what I want to note about the moment of that um, announcement. This is uh, Carolyn Custis James, Lost Women of the Bibles, really um, wonderful resource. I highly recommend it. When she's talking about the real Mary, um, Mary's response in several different ways indicates that she has been seeped in scripture, seeped She knows the promises of God because when she says, may it be as God has said, she knows that what this is, the promise is linked to. When she sings her song, it mirrors Hannah's song of praise. Mary knows the scripture. So what does this mean? Think about this though. At the moment of hearing this, she knows the scripture, you guys. She also knows Deuteronomy, where is it? Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24. If somebody is found to be pregnant in engagement, this is not good. That's adultery. She is classified in her community as an adulteress at this point. And so uh, as... Uh, Uh, Carolyn here says, with those words, Mary lost her reputation, her dreams, and the respect of the Jewish community. At least initially, she lost the trust of her husband-to-be. 
the Old Testament scriptures, we don't have record that people were regularly practicing this, but still culturally you have to think this is how much shame is brought upon. Not only Mary, but her entire family. You carry the shame to your entire family. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be Mary and he sleeps with her, you'll take them both out to the gate of the town and stone them to, town, stone them to death, you get the drift. The, the adultery um, punishment was death. And so what happens if um, Joseph says, never mind, it's mine, then the whole town is like, you guys are naughty. You're still in trouble. What happens if Joseph says, this child is not mine, then she goes to trial and this is her potential punishment. What if she says, I've been wronged? Then there's this whole other cultural moment of public shame while they determine whether or not she was assaulted. Okay, so you guys, the point is, Mary is about to be brought very publicly to a very big deal in a small town moment. This is going to hurt. And at the announcement, Mary knows all the scriptures. I know she knows this one too. I know she knows that culturally what she has perceived to have done is a really big deal. So we do know this. Um, so there, we know about the announcement. And at that moment, we know that there's a decision. And so I think about this moment when she thinks, she says right away, like, yes, have it be according to God's will. But she must be thinking about the repercussion of that decision, right? But what, I want to look really quickly at the reactions. Because, oh, I forgot to mention our, our buddy Joseph. Our buddy Joseph is righteous and has decided to divorce her privately. Now that means... Of all the people in the town, you guys, besides Mary, of all the people in the town, there's one person who knows that this baby isn't Joseph's, and that's Joseph. He is sure. Everybody else may have a question mark, but Joseph knows for sure that this baby isn't his. And so what do you, of course, think, right? You have no other thought but to think, my wife-to-be has been with someone else and is carrying his child. Like, this is a really big deal, um, especially with family lineage and reproductive rights being a very important thing in how things are carried on, okay? So really, really big deal. But then, um, okay, where am I? Sorry. This is the downside of not being tidy. Um, so she's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So he knows, like, I, he knows the law too, but he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. That's just kindness. I just like read between the lines. That's just kind. He had every right to put her out to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife and tells what's happened and the, the, the passage that Kristen just, read, Kristen just read for us. So, um, what are both of their reactions? Let's look at this. In the moment that the angel comes, we talked about it before. Mary says, may it be as the Lord has said. She just, she says that right away. So like the bravest moment, like in the cultural moment that she's in. And I really love what Scott McKnight says in his book, The Real Mary. He pointed something out that I hadn't thought about. Again, she's seeped in scripture. She knows this stuff, right? I mean, she also knows the mercy of God as has been demonstrated to other women who have been put in precarious situations. She knows the story of Rahab, the prostitute, and God's mercy with Rahab. She knows the story of Tamar, who was raped. She knows the story of Bathsheba, who was uh, 
taken advantage of by King David for sure. Um, Those the story I would add of Hagar who was trafficked. She knows the story of women in precarious positions and the mercy of God to protect and still take care of them. I believe she knows that mercy in this moment when she says, may it be. And then Joseph. Joseph is like step-parent number one. I'm a step-mom. I love the step-parent part of the Joseph story because the angel comes and says this, and then we get this moment where Joseph, A, believes the angel, so we got faith. We've already got kindness marked up to him towards Mary, even though he must be so hurt. But then the angel says this, and there we have, we have this beautiful faith, but then what does he do? He does everything to start caring for her, to start doing what's needed to protect the child in her womb before he's born, and he gives Jesus his name. The scripture tells us that he's the one who gives him the name Jesus. And what that indicates, you guys, is adoption. That uh, indicates that that father is taking fathership of that child who the town thinks is illegitimate. And so that's a moment where stepdad Joseph is saying, yep, I'm in it to win it. And what's the cost? We already talked about this. How will the town treat them? Will they try to keep figuring out who the real dad is? Will they treat Jesus unkindly? People were known to treat the child unkindly, even though the child had nothing to do with how the child came to be, right? Like there were things that people didn't treat kids always um, well. So like, wouldn't they have felt the weight of that? This was like a really big decision and they count the cost and both of them move forward with a yes. And then the travel begins. And I want us to just remember like the, the youth of Mary, the shame that they both have had to endure, but the faith they both have because they know the truth. Have you ever known a truth and no one around you knows it? You guys, it's kind of frustrating. You have no way to prove it, but you know what is true and everyone around doesn't. But they had that. I wonder how it knit them together. You know, in this new life of husband and wife where they were not yet um, intimate, but very much in this long journey together and everything else, what did it do to knit their hearts together that they were the two people who held at this point, held a truth that they both believed and knew? So we, we join them in this moment as the travel begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born of the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when he had called together the people. Okay, so they say, you know, where is this Messiah to be born? They said he's coming in to Bethlehem and Herod called the Magi and wanted to find out the exact time the star had appeared. And so King Herod is threatened by this. But what we know at this point, um, I think I just read from the wrong gospel, which is why that wasn't what I was trying to talk about. They travel, that should have been from Luke. Oh gosh, you guys, I promise I won't do this next time. But I had fun with it, if that matters. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken in the entire Roman emperor. 
Roman world. We're back in Luke chapter 2, not Matthew. Um, everyone went to the town of their ancestors to register, right? So Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem in the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married with him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room of available for them. Speaking of things we know and don't know, by the way, um, it's not an inn exactly. It's a guest room. This is the same word that's used when a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Passover, when Jesus says, uh, go and uh, find the person who has made a guest room available for us. Remember for the Last Supper? It's that word. It's not the same word that's used in the Good Samaritan where they went to an inn and paid the innkeeper. So it's a little bit different. What is most likely in this scenario is that uh, Joseph, along with some of his family, is forced to go in this really inconvenient time to the town of Bethlehem. So the family would have, some of them would have had to travel together. But Mary, Mary's not with her family, you guys. She's with her new in-laws. But that's okay. There's still people. Um, and they go to this town. But that would be, I wanted my mom around, you know, and I needed to call my sisters. And anyway, um, they went to this town, and when they got there, there were no guest rooms available. Maybe they were looking at these public housing travel lodges that were there, maybe, but most likely the, the extended family of Joseph was needing to take in just gobs of people, and they didn't have the guest rooms needed. And so um, we don't know exactly, exactly what it would have looked like, but this is an example of a house. Sometimes they think the bottom part would have been um, like more in a cave built up above it. So the living quarters are up above, or the sleeping quarters, no more guest rooms around, but we, they would have had to basically take a humble spot down. It'd be like when you were in college and you like slept on your friend's dining room floor on a blow up mattress, but like on hay. And then they would have had to place this baby in a manger because they were down in the same area as the animals. But this, this might be a little bit more. It wasn't like hotels were saying no to them. So I just want to like give us that image a little bit more. And here we have this moment of birth, right? We have young, young Mary doing this for the first time. She's got Joseph as her birthing partner, probably. Um, maybe some of these unknown in-laws were helping out. We don't totally know. Um, but they have some clean straw and they've got some like cloth linens to wrap the baby in. And here they are in this strange place and the baby comes. And I imagine her and Joseph being the two that know, like they know, looking at this baby's face and knowing the hugeness of what God has just done as they lay this baby in a feeding trough and just the juxtaposition of that would just have been so powerful on that peaceful, holy night when all was still so quiet. We hear a little bit later on as we put the stories together that the Magi did come to visit. This was probably a little bit later, not there that day. They were following a star, right? And so they came a little bit later and they offered these gifts, which would have been very strange gifts for a 13-year-old mom to receive, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But you guys, this is really beautiful. When we go and read and, gosh, I wish I had done a better job of... Okay, I'm going to stop saying that. It just is what it is. You guys are all so patient. Um, 
here's what happens next. Okay, so the Magi have come, they've given these gifts, and then um, they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. You guys, I don't think they have the whole crew of family with them this time. These guys must have felt so vulnerable, but they also knew the Lord's protection and who this baby was. There they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so when we think about this, again, we don't know this, but now Joseph has left his family, Mary obviously as well, his livelihood and everything. They are now exiled into Egypt for the safety of this baby and I imagine that the way they supported themselves was by trading in the gold and frankincense and myrrh. Like God's provision is so beautiful. That's what I imagine they do. So they stay there for a while until he is told once again in a dream that it's safe to go back after Herod died. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And it goes on to explain that they land back in Nazareth again. I don't know whether or not the stories are done by the time they get back. They have had quite an adventure, but that's where they raise Jesus. That's where Mary and Joseph stay together and uh, raise Jesus. And we have a few other stories about Jesus's young life, but not a ton. Um, We do know that Mary and Joseph were at least, Joseph was at least around until Jesus was 12, right? Because we have the story in the temple. And so at least up through 12, Mary and Joseph together as uh, a family were teaching Jesus scripture, They taught him the Psalms that Jesus would later quote. They taught him the promises of God that he would realize he was fulfilling and they would quote all of this. Like they were, they were the first teachers of this little, little Jesus. Um, Somewhere along the line, we lose Joseph. We don't, we don't know where, but we know that Mary becomes a widow and we see her throughout the time again with family for a while. And then we see Mary for the last, um, but like a powerful moment at, at the foot of the cross. And here's Mary, who's known the whole time, who has treasured things up in her heart for so long, now sitting at the cross, looking up at her son, who speaks down and takes care of her by taking her into the care of the disciple John, because you guys, Mary is suffering another enormous humiliation. Her son is dying a criminal's shameful death. She knows the truth. No one else does. And this isn't something that Mary alone could explain to everyone. So we see a woman who started out in Jesus's life bearing the shame of her culture and ends with the culture looking at her and just really shaking their heads. And she lived her life that way so bravely because she knew And Mary, we heard early, she held these things. She treasured these things in her heart when people were speaking to her. And you guys, she went beyond that because she went forward and she became one of the first ones to tell the story of the truth, to pass down through the generations so that our gospel writers even knew about that angel. She would have been the one. Who else could have told those stories? Joseph was gone. So Joseph has shared with Mary about the stories of the angel. Mary's treasured them in her heart and now she speaks them 
them to all who will listen. I know the truth. And we've seen this resurrected son and we've known the fullness of this story. And part of that story was Mary's testimony of what it was that God was doing in and through Jesus. She knew from the beginning. She watched it unfold and it did pierce her heart her mama's heart. And she was a widow by that time. She didn't even have Joseph to share in that knowledge. She had Jesus. Jesus knew. But anyway, um, I love that reminder of testimony of the faithfulness of God and how we're all expanded when somebody speaks their testimony. We all are expanded now because Mary was bold to share a story and to be brave in that story along with Joseph. So quickly, I'm going to give three observations that I want as we've just sat with Mary and Joseph that I want to toss out to you guys and just allow you to sit with them, one of them, whatever one kind of sits with you. Three thoughts that um, just really impacted me this last week. One, again, was from Scott Erickson. Um, when you just really, when we see those tidied up nativity images, right, um, we lose something in the grittiness. And I love the holiness of uh, the birth story. I love it. It's so beautiful. But I really love here how Scott reminds us to just sit with the miraculousness of the humans that God involved in this what does it say about God who's willing to be this vulnerable with us? Who's willing to come into this world through the statistical risk of childbearing? Who's willing to be attached by a placenta for nourishment and life to his own creation? Who's willing to wait and grow in a human womb? Who's willing to be fearfully and wonderfully made just as we are? What it says about a God who's willing to be this vulnerable and is willing to open God's self up to deeply connect with us. There's something really beautiful in remembering the gritty humanness that was united with divine. And I think that that's something that was really beautiful for me this week in just sitting with the real Mary and Joseph. Number two, I would say this, Carolyn Custis James again talks a lot about the importance as she studies these women to remember that God's original plan was what she calls the blessed alliance. And this is expanded beyond marriage, you guys. This is what it really looks like to be men and women, community together reflecting God's image and God's design, together taking on this design that God um, would call us to the fullness of stewarding this earth. She calls it the blessed alliance when men and women are doing this design together with and for one another. And she points out that Mary and Joseph, a little young Mary and faithful kind Joseph are a beautiful example of the blessed alliance as they actually sit there and defer to one another, trust one another. They're both doing the Ephesians 5 thing where it's submitting first to Christ to God. They, they're both submitted under Christ to what Christ needs. And in that place, they are with and for each other in the stewardship of this young life. It's beautiful. And that blessed alliance that they represent so beautifully goes beyond, again, beyond marriage, but is beautifully reflected in these two common, probably culturally ridiculed, probably marginalized people 
who God chose to nurture the divine. That's really beautiful. Blessed Alliance is a beautiful thing. And then number three, um, I would say this. I think that there's something really remarkable in uh, both of the accounts. They keep on saying that the response is joy, right? So like the Magi find the Christ child and they respond in joy. Uh, Mary hears uh, this announcement that's going to cost her dearly, dearly and her soul rejoices. There's so much joy. And so I'm actually going to quote um, Kelly Miller, who wrote this um, devotional for us. And I love what she points out. Joy, so think here specifically about Mary's joy in hearing this really tough assignment. Joy doesn't require certainty or the absence of fear and pain. It will come right into the mess of all of it. But joy does require trust. And I believe that to be true. I believe that the joy that Mary could feel in the light of this really hard assignment, that joy mixed with trepidation, whatever other feelings I can imagine must have been conjured up, along with joy, they can coexist. Joy can exist with the fear, with the uncertainty, with all of it when our joy is rooted in trust in God and the promises of God. It's rooted in something else, and that is the only way that the advent tension of joy can coexist with the messy stuff of life. And so I leave you with those thoughts, but mainly I just leave you with the encouragement. Like, sit with the real Mary and Joseph a little bit this week. Think about this young couple and their real gritty dirty messiness, their faithfulness, their kindness, their scaredness, their joy, and allow God to just um, minister to you through the real humanness of this, um, this couple. Uh, Jesus, we love you and just thank you that uh, you have shared with us um, your life and your stories that include your stepdad and your mom. And I, we thank you that the, the human and the divine can kind of blow our mind, but we just come back to you and hold mystery before you in trust and um, just say, yeah, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring to fullness what you have promised and the, the beauty of things still to come and restoration still ahead. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.